Welcome back, everyone. This is Austin Roberts. Here on the ECOSIF podcast, we engage leading thinkers in conversations about the kinds of transformations required to create a more sustainable, peaceful, and just world. We bring you today's episode in partnership with One Project, which is a nonprofit initiative working globally with communities to design, implement, and scale new forms of governance and economics that are equitable, ecological, and effective. The focus of this episode, along with several others to follow over the coming months, is to elevate themes of the recent book, The New Possible, through a series of podcast dialogues on global systems change. For more information about The One Project and The New Possible book, check out the links in the show notes for this episode. In the conversation that follows, Andrew Schwartz talks with Vandana Shiva about why the world's farmers are going hungry. Vandana is an internationally renowned author, scientist, and activist whom Forbes magazine identified as one of the seven most powerful women on the globe. In this deep dive discussion on the complex web of political, economic, educational, scientific, agricultural, and social issues, Vandana connects the dots that frame a broken food system. And she explains new visions, new openings, or new possibles for moving toward an ecological civilization. And now, here's Andrew and Vandana. Vandana, thank you for joining us. Today's conversation is going to focus on a deceptively simple question. Why are the world's farmers going hungry? Can you begin to to sort of paint this picture of complex systems of systems, values and um, and laws that have contributed to a phenomena that seems strange. The people that grow the food are having difficulty getting access to it. Well, um, I think this is the, the heart of the puzzle, the problem of industrial globalized agriculture, which has its roots in colonialism, as well as in uh, in war, uh, most fa- people of the world were farmers or, or people of the forest, yeah? And both in the forest and on the farm, growing food was the primary objective. And people grew not just one or two crops, but in the forests, they cultivated as well as harvested. I mean, now the literature's coming out, that the Amazon was a farm. It's not a wild forest. Uh, Australia is not a bush. It's a farmed continent. So what looks wild, just because it's not invasive, only means that it was, ma- it was managed with care. Today's wilderness areas are the results of food production system of indigenous people, where no indigenous culture I know grew food only for human beings. They definitely didn't grow food only for the market, but their worldview was not anthropocentric. Growing food for all creation and growing of food was feeding creation. So there's a, you know, when I started to deal with globalization and patenting of seed and intellectuality, I traveled to remote corners of India, both to save seeds as well as to talk to the seed savers about what's happening with intellectual property. And uh, the heart of the rice area, where rice evolved, 200,000 varieties of rice, the farmers had these beautiful, uh, you know, artworks on their doors. And 
very, very innocently, I said, oh, you must have had a festival because we've got used to the idea that art is for decoration. And right. the women just looked at me and said, no, this is for the birds when the fields don't have rice anymore. And even awesome. in the or across India, there's beautiful system of rangoli or columns, you know, the beautiful designs. And they too, these designs are the most amazing geometry. But what are they doing? They're feeding the ants. Yeah, it was rice flour. So all indigenous culture fed everyone and they fed with joy. So they never disrupted the food web. They enrich the food web. The first thing that happens is their land is taken away. And colonialism really was displacement, both of forest people and the peasantry. So that's the first step where people start to go hungry. And I've studied this in detail for my country where uh, land was never owned, land was a commons. You could not own land as private property. You had usurpatory rights to land, and this was passed on generation to generation. And it's the local community that had this history. And therefore, if there was ever a little dispute, it was the community that settled it. And then came the British Empire, and overnight with a stroke of a pen, they just declared all the land was theirs. And then they took the most fertile areas and pushed the peasants to the marginal areas and, of course, extracted rents from the original land users, not land owners, because we never had that idea. We had a beautiful um, phrase in India, Sabi Bhumi Gopal ki. Gopal is just another name of the creator. It says all land belongs to the creator and we are merely custodians. We are merely trustees of the land. So what did we see? With, when the British took over the land, they became the landlords and they appointed sub-landlords here, which is called Zamidari. And then they extracted half the produce in cash from the peasantry. What did this result in? 45 trillion transferred to England. And this is all in economic records. It's all proven. And 40 to 60 million starved to death because of extractors. So the great Bengal famine was not because there wasn't enough rice. Amartya Sen, the Nobel laureate, has done a whole book on this. There was enough rice. And if the rice hadn't been taken away, farmers would have been having food. When the rice was taken away as rent collection, they starved. Then you come to the industrial age where the costs of production are so high that I have watched in places where rice originated, lovely places like Kalahandi and Orissa, where the fields are rich with rice, but the peasants are starving. Then when I get, got deeper into it, since the Green Revolution, since chemical agriculture, they've had to borrow. They don't have the money. First, they sold the silver. And when that ran out, they borrowed. When they borrow, when they grow the rice, they have to sell the rice to the person from whom they borrowed for the chemical fertilizers and the pesticides and the seed. So my calculation is that they start eating half because when they sell, it's low. When they buy it as food, it's more expensive. That's the price differential that makes for profits. And so they go hungry. And then finally, 
the reason why farmers are growing hungry is food has been commoditized. Farmers and most of the crops now are not food to eat. Look at the GMO corn and the GMO soya. It's raw material now. It's a commodity. It goes to make biofuel. It may goes to make animal feed and people starve. So these are the complexities over time as well as today. And what I see happening now is the idea that farmers will not grow food at all. You know, they're talking about farming without farmers and food without farms. And basically through more industrialism, more digitalization, more mechanization, basically substituting farmers to grow more feedstock for food that will be grown in the lab. And this will disenfranchise very, very large numbers. So while farmers are going hungry today, farmers who were farmers will go hungry because they have been prevented from farming. That's the future. And that's why we, uh, you know, we have to build an ecological civilization where no one goes hungry. Indeed. And I definitely want to talk more about what it would look like to have an ecological civilization where no one goes hungry. But, but before we get there, so it, let's say I'm a skeptic and I want to say, you know, yeah, you can, you know, do we really want to go backward to a world full of farmers? Isn't autom autom uh, automation a good thing? And people can do something else with their time. We don't need farmers to feed the world. Um, so, you know, this whole modern paradigm of using machinery uh, and laboratories and, and those sorts of things to produce food, isn't that a good thing for the future of humanity? What would you say to somebody who says something like that? Well, if you say that climate change doesn't matter, then more industrialism is a very good thing. But if you factor in the emissions from an energy-intensive production system, then it does matter. So the industrial agriculture system is called efficient. But if you look at it from the energy equation, ecological systems use one unit of energy to produce 10 units of nourishing food, not just for humans, but the whole web of life. Industrial systems are the first step use 10 units of external energy, largely fossil fuel, to produce one unit of bad food or a commodity. Now, if you then take the grain and feed it to animals, where animals are herbivores and should be eating grass, or the straw that we don't eat, we have complementary diets. But right now, animal factory farming is being made to compete with human beings. And if you move to factory farming, then feeding soya protein to animals uses 100 times more input than what you get out as protein from a factory farm. And I don't equate animals working in synergy with trees, with soil, with human beings in integrated systems. I don't like the word animal agriculture because it hides factory farming. It hides the prisons of the new factory farming system. And if you look at the factory farming system, where's the money being made? In the animal feed. That's where the profits are. Then if you take it further, one more step of intensification of energy inputs. 
I would say a thousand units to produce one unit of hazardous food. And no one has tested lab food. No one's tested the impossible burger. There was a little bit of test on this fake blood they pour into it to make it look. And yeah, that's the other thing. And I say, when did we lose our connection with ontology? Yeah. Where cooked up words substitute. Yeah. So imagine burger, impossible burger, you know, all about I've, I've gone to the impossible place. But these ingredients have never been tested. And this much we know. Just like we know, the more external energy input there is in a system, the more entropy there is in that system. And climate change is nothing but entropy. The pollution from entropic systems. Ecological systems actually have negative entropy. They hold energy together and recycle energy. And here we have an alternative, which is negative energy, which can actually reverse climate change and a system which will keep accelerating. And Amory Lovins has a brilliant term for this, this modernization that hides the energy input. He calls it energy slaves. And he's at that time in 75, when he wrote this, he was talking about one American being equal to uh, having two, being equivalent to 250 Filipinos in terms of the energy input that goes into systems. And I would think it's gone thousands of times more now. So if you take the energy slaves behind the industrial civilization, our population on this planet is trillions of human beings. But most of them are not human beings in embodied form. Mm. Most of them are energy slaves who are still guzzling the resources. Now, the second element of this, I mean, you know, why would it matter? Well, just in the last decade, I mean, my, my civilization gave birth thousands of years ago, some say 5,000, some say 10,000, to the most sophisticated health science called Ayurveda, which means the science of life. Ayur is life, Veda is science. And it's totally tested, tried, not in Cartesian logic, but in systems, Sy systems experience and systems knowledge. And in Ayurveda, they always say it begins in the gut. Right now, Western science is catching up with the fact that all diseases begin in the gut. If all diseases begin, begin in the gut microbiome, what is interacting with the gut microbiome? The food you eat. And it's so clear that just in the last 20 years of ultra-processed foods, chronic diseases have exploded. So if you think lab food is equal to the carrot you took from your garden, well, ignore 90% of yourself, which is your gut microbiome. But once you get the chronic disease, you can't ignore anymore. So the two big boundary conditions that you cannot ignore, no matter what you do, and no matter how modern you say you are, is the impact through energy use on climate change and the violation of the planetary boundaries and the impact in the microcosm that is us, of the microcosm that is the world, is our gut microbiome. Now, these are, they set laws, they set rules that are absolutely unbiased. You know, you have to respect them. You have to respect the Earth's planetary boundaries. You have to respect 
the gut microbiomes need for diverse food and fresh food and poison-free food and glyphosate-free food and food free of manipulation and genetic engineering. So between these two, that is true progress. Then if you can move while fulfilling these boundary conditions, then we've got something new. But otherwise, all you have is violation and war. A war against the human body and war against the Earth's body. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I don't I don't even know where to go from here. There's so much that we're touching on. I mean, we're talking, we're covering uh, connections of capitalism, colonialism, commodification, um, climate change. We're talking about uh, nutrition. We're talking about, uh, I mean, the, the philosophy of food. Why do we not have more conversations about what actually constitutes food? Um, what's the, what do, you know what I mean? Like, I, yeah. So, you know, the fascinating thing, and this is something we should do in ecological civilization. Take the diverse faiths and what they said about food. And I know my own culture. No matter which textbook you pick up, you could pick up the Mahabharata, or you could pick up the Ramayana, or you could pick up the Tetra Upanishad, or you could pick up the ancient Vedas. And they have a simple recognition of what is food. <laughs> Everything is food, Everything is something else's food because the web of life is a food web. What moves across beings is nourishment and nutrition. So food, as I say, is the currency of life. Why don't we talk more about this? Because along the way, those who made chemicals to kill, the IG Farbans and their partners, they weren't going to give up the habit of using these chemicals. And they should have wrapped up the factories, but as Rachel Carson has reminded us in her book, Silent Spring on pesticides. And as Albert Howard has reminded us in his book, Agricultural Testament, written when he was sent to India to improve Indian farming. And he arrived here and he said, I can't improve this. Right. The fields are fertile. There are lots of insects, but no pest damage. I'm going to make the peasant and the pest my professor. From 1905 to 1930, he studied under the pest and the peasant and wrote a book called The Agricultural Testament, which became the basis of the contemporary organic movement. Built by Soil Association in, um, uh, in England, Eve Balfour was his colleague, and uh, Rodale in America. Rodale came to meet Howard. So we find a very tight-knit connection between those who could see that food is at the heart of creation, that taking care of how you grow food is the best way to take care of the soil, the earth, our health. And that's the basis of the contemporary organic movement. Now, those who made money out of chemicals said, why wish we give up the habit? And they turned these into agrochemical inputs, they changed the science, they redefined the definition of plants, which became machines, run on fuel, which is the fertilizer. They redefine soil as empty container for pouring the fertilizer into. And again, the ontology was totally turned on its head. Mm -hmm. And it then went on with the GMO age and now the fake food age. So trillions get made out of seed and food. And those who get addicted to the trillions will silence truth. They will silence knowledge they will silence true conversations. And that's why 
we have to be even more resilient in continuing these conversations. Absolutely. So you mentioned a few times ecological civilization. And in my mind, you know, this, this idea that we need a civilizational change, a, a transformation at a far deeper level than most people realize. And when we're talking about um, complex problems, I think it's easy for, for people to get sort of overwhelmed and lost in the details of all the different little pieces that need to be changed. But something I think uh, helps me to sort of think through this is that rather than focusing on these individual symptoms of a much larger problem, we need to get underneath to the root cause of those problems. And I think you've already touched on some of this um, with, with reference to basically a, a, an, a radical paradigm shift. A lot of it has to do with ontology. A lot of it has to do with values and worldviews. But something you said I thought was absolutely brilliant, this focus on uh, food as the currency of life. And to what would it look like to shift our our food systems, our civilizational systems, from a focus on the production of profits uh, to the production of life? So, what I'm wondering if we can do for a bit is to dream together. So let's imagine. I always love to to dream of the future. Let's imagine that we've successfully built an ecological civilization. Sounds good so far. Yeah. Okay. Um, this is a future in which no one goes hungry, especially our farmers. But what does it look like? How is food grown? How is it distributed? What do we eat? Does global trade still exist? What sort of things are traded? I mean, what what would what would it look like to have an ecological civilization? So, uh, Andrew, for me, this is not about a dream for the future. This is about my practice that literally has be forced on me, forced not by any external force, but forced by my conscience. When I watched the most prosperous parts of India being destroyed by the Green Revolution, which is another name for chemical agriculture, industrial agriculture. When they introduced industrial farming in the third world, they didn't say this is industrial farming. They said this is the Green Revolution. And they called it green, not because there was a fashionable green movement. That was born only in the 70s and 80s, but because there was a color red, the red revolution, and they had to have a color different from red. And the entire ideology that was packaged was, oh, we're going to stem communism. But the objective was, how do you sell more chemicals? And I have a book called The Violence of the Green Revolution, which has been published by um, Kentucky University Press in, in the United States. I wrote it after studying the 1984 protests in Punjab, and we have currently protests going on, and people would have been young today, are white-bearded six, still 10 years later, resisting a destructive agriculture. So the agriculture we have practiced is A, realizing that food begins with the amazing blessing of the sun, Combining with carbon dioxide, which is a problem when you use fossil fuels, but is the very basis of food production. The photosynthesis in the plant, the sunshine, the carbon dioxide through photosynthesis become our food. Now, if that's the case, what do you want to maximize? You want to maximize photosynthesis. That means you want to maximize more and more branches, more and more leaves. I watch around the world 
more and more agriculture becoming one-dimensional. The other day I got off on our way to our farm, our biodiversity farm at Navdanya in Derudun, because I suddenly saw maize with leaves only in one, two, you know, in, in one direction. And, and, and all the cobs, you know, our cobs go where they want to go. But this maize, which I think is a hybrid maize from Monsanto, had all the cobs at the same height, all the plants were the same height, and the leaves were like that. And I said, oh my God, they forget these are one quarter acre farmers who can who will go to the field and harvest. They've done this for the machines. Yeah, so they're taming the plants. I've seen apples in, in the abs turned from apple trees of bounty to one dimensional stocks, which can't stand. And therefore they have to have the steel framework and concrete framework and plastic framework to hold it. And then because these are weak, they're sprayed and sprayed and sprayed. And the apple has lost its leaves. And when I said, I can't imagine an apple tree without its branches. And this person from the commodity system got up and said, Photosynthesis is a waste. Photosynthesis and leaves are a waste of, you know, it should only be apples to be harvested with poison and fed. So I think we need more diversity. And our work has shown that the more diversity there is, the more food there is. We have three reports, biodiversity-based productivity, where I measured farm after farm, where the more the biodiversity, the more the food production. Then we converted this into nutrition that if you take that biodiversity and convert it to nutrition, and we measure nutrition per acre and health per acre, we have a report called health per acre, we can feed two times India's population through conservation of biodiversity, not by destroying it. And finally, when you say, what about trade? Well, India was a prosperous country through trade. We grew spices in beautiful four-dimensional gardens, you know? Not a space was left where the sunshine did not harvest. You know, you had the palm tree and then you had the, the, the pepper vine climbing along it and then you had the cardamom. Every space was used in this three-dimensional plantation. We were 25% of the world's economy. We were the biggest traders for, I don't know, centuries before Christ was born and centuries after centuries after, it was the spice trade that led to all of the wars of civilization and everything, because everyone wanted to control the spices. And Columbus set sail for the spices and the East India Company was created to control the spices. So we had trade where we used very tiny amounts of land for very high value production. And it brought us prosperity and no one went hungry. Now, what do we have? We have long distance trade for staples. And because food has been commoditized, the car is competing, the factory farm is competing, the people are competing for the same commodity. And it's never enough. Therefore, soya bean must now grow in the Amazon. When, if, when we grew ed edible oils, we grew it on our little farms. Or when we grew pulses, we grew them on our farms. Now, once you're commodified, that ne never is it enough because commodities don't know when to stop growing. Mm. And as a result of this, what we really have is the global supply chains. And it's fascinating because in this period of COVID, you know, it's the local supply chains that worked. And I work with millions of women in India 
And woman after woman would come back and say, you encouraged us to grow gardens. You encouraged us to grow biodiversity. And we never went hungry one day. And not just that, because we were growing our herbs and we were eating well. No one got COVID in our village. Nobody got COVID in our village. On the other hand, all the pieces being forced, because when, when you reduce food to a substance to be processed, where profit after profit after profit at every level of extraction, not only do you create the chronic disease, not only do you get the emissions and food miles, but you create hunger. Why is America the land with the highest commodity production, the land with the highest number of food desks in the cities? That is the contradiction. And there's a lot of trade going on, but it's the trade in the wrong thing in the hands of the wrong people. What they that call it the spy trade in books or yeah that you we yeah. must grow a we must feed the soil first we must feed the soil second we must feed the family and the community then we must create the local economy of food and we must trade in the spice of life <laughs> and that's fine because it will have a very small footprint and it will benefit the people who eat the pepper. Because food was so boring in Europe till the pepper came. Yeah, I mean, I, I have done means that have been done where, you know, this is what the food looked like till pepper arrived. Yeah, and you couldn't eat it, it was rotten. Yeah? And, uh, and I think, you know, the pepper grows grow, benefit and the eater benefits. Right now we have a system where the farmer goes hungry and the eater gets disease. And the earth has extinction and climate havoc. So it's not benefiting anybody at all. And, you know, I think part of the whole ecological civilization is, issue is shifting from extractivism as the logic to giving back, to gratitude, to giving back. You know, all my work on agriculture, every life, the one thing we have to do is be grateful to the earth and care for her. Everything else happens. And that's a huge paradigm shift. I I think I, I've got one more set of questions before we let you go here. And that's, I know you're all, you've already been doing this work for a long time and, and on, on sort of making a difference. Um, and I was wondering if you can touch on some of the biggest obstacles in transforming our food systems, uh, key leverage points for change, but perhaps more importantly, how can, what can people at home do uh, to make a difference? I mean, we're talking about this sort of massive complex overhaul of global economic, agricultural, political, you know, civilizational systems. What can any yeah. one of us do? And how can we be a part of such change? Well, you know, when the British Empire ruled 80% of the territories of the world and Gandhi took on the challenge of dealing non-violently with the empire and people were talking about systems change, and he was talking about system change, and he said, you have to be the change you want to see. So because of industrialism and the industrial non-civilization, you know, when they asked, what do you think of Western civilization? He said, well, it would be a good idea if they could become civilized. You know? And uh, because industrialism is about extractivism, it's about exploitation, it's about domination. It goes in the package, and he's wrote a brilliant book on freedom uh, while he was still in South Africa. So we have to be the change we want to see. And the three things I realized, you know, because my, my 
basic studies are quantum theory. And I can see the mechanical mind start to work. I identified immediately. And people say, oh, but how will you scale it up? I said, nothing gets scaled up in life. Everything gets scaled out in beautiful webs. So we need scaling out. But how does things scale out? Like the mycorrhizal fungi in the soil. All you need is fertile soil and the fungi will appear. You don't have to engineer them. You don't have to create them. The soil creates them. All you have to do is not deprive the soil of its food. That's why gratitude. That's why giving. And then each field changing means the whole world's fields change. Yeah. Only the dominators think of changing from the top. Life, ecology, the earth, communities begin by changing from the bottom. And how much we can learn from our, our ecosystem uh, in the, the web of life. Yes, yes. Well, thank you so much for, for this conversation. I think we covered quite a lot in 30 minutes and I love listening to you talk always. It's always great to talk with you and learn from you. Um, so thank you for thank your time. You. Thank you very much, Andrew. And we will work for a world where no one goes hungry. Absolutely. Happy to work with you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.